0: And um, as we get to chapter three of First Kings, um, we see probably, you know, the one thing you associate with Solomon, right? If I'd had to do a word association test, and I kind of said, okay, Solomon, what's the first thing that pops into your head? Wisdom, right? Wisdom. Well, here, First Kings chapter three, we see we see where where he gets it. Um, so let's read this. I'm just going to read verses um, one to to fifteen. Listen as I as I read God's word. Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. He brought her to the city of David until he finished building his palace in the temple of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. The people, however, were still sacrificing at the high places because a temple had not yet been built for the name of the Lord. Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the statutes of his father David, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. The king went to Gibeon to offer sacrifices, for that was the most important high place, and Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, You have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people. You have chosen a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, Since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both riches and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands, as David your father did, I will give you a long life. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the ark of the Lord's covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. This is God's word. Let's come to him in prayer and ask that he bless our study of it this morning. Our Father, we're thankful that you speak to us, uh, that you teach us, Lord, that you are the, the author of all knowledge, the provider of it, and the one who grants and gives wisdom. Lord, as we study what that means this morning, we pray, Lord, that we would be attentive to your word, that all the things that are happening in our lives would be filtered through it, and that you would bless us. As we seek to take it and what it teaches us into a world that so desperately needs the hope that your word offers, and so we pray for these things in Jesus' name, Amen. So, Irvin Yalom is a retired professor at the Stanford University School of Medicine. He's a, a he's a psychotherapist, and he's written lots of lots of popular books, um, both fiction and nonfiction, um, and not from any type of you know biblical perspective per se. In fact, at times he actually can be quite critical of organized Christianity. But he, he does at other times display a remarkable insight into humanity and who we are and the things that that trigger us. And and one of the books, in one of the books he's written, he starts by asking the reader to imagine a scene where there's this big group the big room of people and, and they're all paired up and they're given the assignment to ask the other person one question, just one question. This is it, over and over again. Um, until they elicit a response. The question is, what do you want? It's a very simple question, what do you want? And he says that every time he's ever done this, this simple, seemingly innocent kind of question tends to elicit this, this amazing emotional kind of gut level response from people. And you can sort of feel the energy, the, the emotion, the, 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 the tension in the room sort of, sort, sort of rise because it reveals something that's very significant about the person who's answering that question. What do you want? Now, how would you answer that, right? What would you say, if if the limits were taken off and you were given sort of the freedom to answer with complete honesty, what do you want? Now, of course, the question, as Yalom presents it, is really just that. It's really just sort of a psychological exercise, just to sort of elicit, you know, what your longings are. And it stops there, it ends there, unless, Unless the one who's asking you that question and the one to whom you're answering actually has the power to grant what you're asking. In the case of Solomon, that's exactly what's happening. In what we just read, God comes to Solomon, verse five, and says, I want you to ask me for whatever you want me to give you. What do you want? And Solomon asks for wisdom and that's what God gives him. Verse 12, that's what it says. Solomon asks and God gives him a wise and a discerning heart. Now, why? Well, first, how would you have answered the question? What do you want? Right? Maybe that's how you would have answered it. You know, I want, to be, I want to be wise. I want to have a wise and discerning heart. Maybe now, after I told you that's Solomon's answer and God said that that was the right answer, you say, well, of course, I guess that's what I, what I should ask for. But, but even with, okay, why though? Why is that the right answer? Why, is Solomon, why does Solomon say the right thing? Why does God commend him for asking for this, for this one thing? That's what we need to look at. We need to understand. And So we're going to look at this idea of wisdom, and we're going to say, okay, first, what what wisdom is, why we need it, how we get it, and then why Solomon's wisdom is not enough, right? What wisdom is, why we need it, how we get it, and why Solomon's isn't enough. So first, what wisdom is. Psychology today sort of the popular you know, psychology journal. Popular psych- psychology today says wisdom is one of those qualities that's very difficult to define right? because it encompasses so much. But it says people generally know it when they see it. Okay, so it means you say, oh, that was wise. You can kind of recognize it. But that's not really a helpful definition. Now they go on and they say other things, of course. But, but we have to do better than that. We have to do better than just, well, I, I, I sort of know it when I see it. So let's try. And let's start by saying what wisdom isn't or at least what wisdom is, is not only. First, wisdom is not only intelligence and education. It's not. It's not the accumulation of facts and the ability to recite them. Right? It's the end of May. We're in the middle of graduation season. I was talking to graduates after the first service. Right? And one of them just got her master's degree. I said, do you feel smarter now? Like, you know, do people call you master? Right? But the fact is, the world is filled with very smart people, lots of very smart people who do very dumb things, Right? You may know some of them. You may be some of them. Right? Lots of cardiologists with very poor diets. Lots of counselors with bad relationships. Lots of bankers that don't know how to balance their own budget. Right? Knowledge is not wisdom. In fact, it can even go farther than that. It can sometimes be very destructive. Right? Some of the most dangerous people in history responsible for some of the worst atrocities of all of mankind have been very intelligent people in terms of intellect. The, the old, there's an old British rock group, King Crimson, and they had a song back in 1969 where they said, knowledge is a deadly friend when no one sets the rules. Right? Knowledge is a deadly friend when no one sets the rules. In other words, right, un- unguided knowledge can be very destructive. It can be deadly. So you step back and say like, okay, it's not, it's not just information, it's not just knowledge, but unguided knowledge, if there's no rule, we need morality, we need, we need moral guidance. And that's true. And before I go on and I say, you know, but wisdom isn't simply morality, let's just kind of give it, its, give it its due because there are an awful lot of decisions that we make on a regular basis that we agonize over. We think we need, like I need this great wisdom when in fact, no, we have, we have moral guidance. We have, the Bible has given us what the moral rule is. I always use it, I, I've used this example before in Faith Explored and other places, but, you know, it's like you're looking for a job. And and you're talking to a friend, and he's telling you about an opening he's heard about. And you're saying, really, tell me about it. What's the job like? And he says, well, I I, I know this guy, and he's the head of the organized crime family in town, and and they've got an opening for a hitman. And the old hitman, well, never mind the old hitman, but, you know, they've got an opening. Right now, besides from needing to find a new friend, how do you answer that? Do you need to go home? you need to pray about it? you need to think about it? No. Say I'm sorry. There's a moral. There's a moral rule here. I have. I have clear guidance about what the the scripture prohibits us from unjustly taking the life of, of another. So I can't. I can't take that job. Now that example. I mean, that's intentionally sort of fantastic to sort of make the make the point. But but you can make it a lot more personal. I mean, I've had people on a regular basis and stuff, and you know, come up to me, particularly as it relates to relational issues, sometimes, and and they're struggling. They're struggling in their marriage, and they say something along these lines, kind of. This is like you know, I'm really just kind of, uh, I'm, I'm struggling with my wife right now, and we're just not really getting along, and it's just not really working, and I don't know, I, you know, I mean, I met this other woman at the office, and she seems really nice. She seems to get me, and it's like, I don't know, what, you know, what do you think? Like, what, I'm just praying for wisdom. I don't need to pray about it. There's nothing, the, the Bible gives us guidance. And that doesn't, that's not to simplify it or to try to make light of it or whatever. I mean, because, you know, there's, there's, a deeply emotion, there's a deep emotional hurt that's going on there. I'm not making light of that. But in this case, there's not, it's not a matter of, of needing kind of wisdom or to, to seek God's guidance. God has given his guidance. There's moral rules. The Bible tells us about, about ourselves, tells us about adultery, tells us about the deceitfulness of our own heart, all those kinds of, all those kinds of things. Now, but let's be honest. There's lots of instances where there aren't, where Scripture it doesn't sort of plainly speak in that same kind of way. It doesn't mean there isn't a right or a wrong. It just means that there isn't, there isn't a rule. There isn't a verse that we can point to that's gonna help us. So for example, go back to the job search example, right? Now, just change it a little bit. You, you just graduated with a degree in elementary education, say. And you've got two job offers in front of you, two different offers. You know all the facts and the information about both of them. Neither of them are unethical or immoral in any kind of way. And you come and you say, which one should I choose? I don't know, I don't know, there's, there's no verse that you can point to, it, it depends. See, that's where you need wisdom. Now, it could very well be that one of those choices is the better choice, the right choice, the one that you should take. But, but so, so information, moral guidance, all those kinds of things are not irrelevant, but it's not enough. See, that's, that's where wisdom is. Wisdom is the ability to make the right choice in the majority of life's decisions where the facts and the rules Aren't enough. The ability to make the right choice in the majority of life's decisions when the facts and the rules aren't aren't enough. That's what Solomon's asking for. Go back to 1 Kings chapter 3. Look at verse 7. So he says to God, He says, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I'm only a little child. Now, not that he was a young child, but that from a maturity standpoint, from being able to step into this great role that, that God has given him, I'm only a little child, and I do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you've chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong, for who is able to govern this great people of yours? In other words, he's saying to God, look, you've made me king. I, I grew up in the royal court. I have, I've had a great education. My father David, he's taught me the law of Moses. I know—I know I know the, I know the moral rules, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to be a great king, because because I could be a smart king, I could be a personally moral king, but I could still seriously wreck this nation. I need wisdom. Now, note what he calls it. Look at the term he uses in verse 9. He says, give give me a discerning heart. It's Literally, that's a listening heart, a heart that is attuned to to God, a heart that that in the midst of all the uncertainty and the the imperfection of the world would give him because he's listening to what God says. God says it's going to give him the ability to make the right choices on behalf of the people of Israel in all of those instances when the facts of the situation and the and the clear moral teaching of the of the law of Moses aren't enough that's what wisdom is now secondly that's what wisdom is now why we need it i've already sort of started to make this case a little bit but let me press a little bit further because when i say that that education and, and following the rules isn't enough, that you need something more, that sort of cuts against sort of the common prevailing advice of, 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 of everyday life because it's like, well, that, that really is enough. What do you need to do? Pass the tests, don't lie, cheat or steal. Right? That's sort of what I thought. I mean, growing up, that's sort of what I thought life was, was about. This is how you, this is how you succeed. And par- I mean, I struggle with this as a parent. Like, you know, parents, if, if you ask your children, okay, what, what basically does the Bible tell you to do? Or uh, adults. Yeah, I ask a lot of people sitting in, you know, in church pews, what does the Bible basically tell you to do? And, and, and if you aren't careful, you can find something coming out of your own mouth or you hear something coming out of someone else's mouth that is basically along the lines of, get good grades and follow the rules. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Now it doesn't teach, like I, I've made the case before, it, it doesn't teach less than, than the moral guidance and the, and, and the rules. But that's not primarily what it's about. In fact, there's lots of times where the Bible itself demonstrates that you need more. Right? Here's a great example, one of my favorite examples from Proverbs itself. Proverbs, the book of wise sayings, much of which was written by Solomon. A lot of times people come to Proverbs and they look at it and say, Great. Just like rule after rule after rule for practical living. I just need to find the right rule and I need to obey it, and I'm good. Proverbs chapter 26, verses four and five. I love this. Verse 4 says. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will be like him yourself. In other words, you encounter someone who's talking foolishness, right? And what Proverbs 26, verse 4 says, if you come across a situation like that, just walk away. Don't even enter into a situation like that. It's not worth it. It's not going to be helpful. Okay, great. I got a rule. Then you read verse 5. Answer a fool according to his folly, or he will be wise in his own eyes. In other words, you encounter a situation where someone is speaking foolishness, and what are you supposed to do? Speak into it. Don't let the foolishness stand. Say something. Correct them. Now, which is it? If I see someone speaking foolishness, what do I do? Do I say something? Do I not say something? What do I do? See, if Proverbs is only just a list of moral rules, right, and not about, not about something greater, you've got a problem. Because you seem to have this direct contradiction here, and God, silly enough, puts the two verses right next to each other so you can see it unless that's not what Proverbs is about. Because the answer to the seeming dilemma of Proverbs 26 verses 4 and 5 is that, of course, it depends. <laughs> there are times when the right choice, when you hear someone speaking foolishness, is to, is to, is to just walk away. It's just not going to be helpful. It's not going to be worth it. It's not going to make any difference. The right thing is to just walk away. And there's other times when you hear someone speaking foolishness where the right thing is to is to speak into that situation and correct them. Now hear me, this is not relativism. This is not saying that there isn't a right or a wrong way to handle that situation. There is, but how do you tell? Not by a rule. You need wisdom. And, that's, and life is full of these kinds of conflicts. What should I do? Right? It, it is for Solomon. It's very interesting to note when I, you know, studying 1 Kings chapter 3 here, how the commentators actually disagree on a lot of the things that Solomon is doing before, before God comes to him in this, in this dream, it, it describes some of what Solomon's doing. Conservative, Orthodox, evangelical scholars and that normally agree with each other, they come out of different places. When it come, For example, should Solomon have been making an alliance with Egypt, like it says he did in verse 1? On the one hand, this kind of thing generally frowned upon by God making alliances with a foreign power, because it signaled, particularly in this time of history, that that the people weren't trusting in God to be their protector, that they were trusting in in alliances with with foreign powers. Now, on the other hand, other commentators point out that, well, it needn't be. I mean, it might be a distrust of God, but not not in every case, and this might just simply be an example of Solomon's astute political, astute economic leadership. It was securing peace on the southern border. It was guaranteeing that when goods flowed up from, from Egypt, they would flow through the nation of Israel. There would be an economic benefit to it. Other disagreement, what, whether Solomon should have been offering sacrifices at the high place in Gibeon in verse 4, right? Now, again, in general, the high places were spaces, they were, they're spaces that were set aside for the pagan worship of Canaanite gods, And when when God commanded the Israelites to go into Israel, into the promised land with Joshua, he commanded them to destroy all of these high places so that there would be no temptation to worship God in an improper way. But where the disagreement comes in is it's kind of a tricky period in Israel's history because the tabernacle hasn't yet been built. The Ark of the Covenant is in Jerusalem. The tabernacle, which is the, the, the tents that prefigure the temple, is in Gibeon. And Solomon seems to be offering worship to the, <laughs> to the God of the universe. God comes to him, doesn't correct him at, at this instance. So the commentators kind of disagree. Now the point, again, is, is not whether there is a right or a wrong decision. And you might, as you look through the rest of the life of Solomon or you look at the rest of the teaching of Scripture, come down in a different place and say, like, oh, I'm not sure you should have done that, Solomon. And look, history sort of bears that out. Or... But the point is to see the complexity of what it means to be a king in these kinds of situations. Solomon needs something that's gonna help him to make these kinds of decisions on behalf of the, of the people. Now, there's a lot more to that discussion, but, but the same is true for us. It's not just for Solomon and for kings. We need this, these kinds of conflicts happen in our lives all the time, complicated situations that require us to make good decisions and information when the, when the moral rules aren't enough. I use the example of a job description, but there's a a job search, but there's lots of other examples, right? How how do you choose to educate your children? What school are you gonna send them to, right? Whether you should go on and get a graduate degree or not get a graduate degree, which college you should go to, right? You know, whether you say, just think of your own personal calendar and the priorities. Do you say yes to this or no to that or so and so invited us here? How do I handle that? I've got a conflict with my neighbor. Should I say something now? Should I wait for another opportunity? Right, th- those are all kinds of examples of the complexity of, of human life. So, so we, need, we need wisdom. Now, how do we get it? That's what wisdom is, why we need it. How do we get it? Well, at its most simplistic level, I guess, the answer is, well, you, you ask for it. That's what Solomon does. He says in verse nine, Give me a discerning heart to govern your people. But God grants Solomon's request, and then he gives him even more. He says, I'm gonna give you, verse 13, I'm I'm gonna give you riches and honor because you didn't ask for those things. I'm I'm gonna bless you even more. But that was Solomon, you say. I mean, and you know, God told him to ask for something. God, God had invited the question. What about me? Actually, the same thing applies to us. I mean, we're not the king of a Near Eastern nation, But the same promise is given to us. James, James, the brother of Jesus, one of the leaders in the New Testament church, wrote a letter that's included in the the New Testament of the portion of the scriptures. And, And James, the brother of Jesus, says in James chapter one, verse five, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. The God who gives generously to all without finding fault. That same generosity that God is showing to Solomon, it's the same generosity that's available to you. James says, ask God who gives generously and it will be given to him. Wisdom will be given to him. So how do you get wisdom? Well, you ask for it. You want to be a listener of God? Do you want to hear what God has to say? Then you draw close to him and and, and think his thoughts after him. You ask him, God, I want this, I need this. But, But here's where we have to be very careful that we don't fall into the genie mentality. You know, the genie of Arabian mythology, rub the lamp, out comes the big blue guy with Robin Williams' voice and says, I want a wish, or you can have any any wish you want. And you say, great, cool, I want to be wise. And poof, you're wise. That's not how it works. Wisdom, this real demonstrated ability to navigate life well, happens over a period of time. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, God God asks Solomon, what do you want? Solomon says, "I, I I want a discerning heart. God gives it to him. And there's evidence that that happens right away, but there's also very clear evidence, both in what we see here in 1 Kings 3 and in the teaching of Solomon himself about what wisdom is, that this is a lifelong process. God intended Solomon to grow in this, to get this wisdom by living it out in obedience to, to him. Look, I think you see that in verse 14. Right, it, says, it says, If you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did... I will give you a long life. In other words, everything that you have, like you can make wise decisions and things will continue to go well for you. You can make unwise decisions and they will not go well for you. You're gonna to need to get this over, over your lifetime as you, walk in my, as you walk in my ways. And this just shows us wisdom is not a, not a genie wish. Solomon teaches this. If you, go, if you read Proverbs one to nine but just that whole section, what you have is this sort of extended commentary by Solomon himself on the nature of what wisdom is and why we need it and, and how to get it. And let me just cite one, one spot. Chapter two, verse one. Solomon is talking to his son, and this is what he says. He says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it As for silver, and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Now, look at what it says. Did you hear it? How do you get wisdom? Well, you ask for it, call out for insight, but how? You store the commands of God in your heart, you seek after it, you pursue it. This is an ongoing pursuit that continually happens. That's how you get wisdom. You believe the promises of God. You obey the commands of God. You do it progressively over time. You fail and you learn all of those kinds of things. Best you can, That's that's what you do. That's how you get wisdom. There's no shortcut. It's not a genie wish. You spend lots of time with God. You study carefully the things that God has written. You surround yourself with people who love you, who can point out those areas, challenge you when you make mistakes so that you struggle and you learn. And then you make better decisions. I've met no Christian person in my life that I would consider to be wise where that hasn't been the case where they haven't come across that wisdom progressively. Yes, it's been God. Yes, they've been seeking it, but it's come to them progressively over a time, a period of life lived in obedience to God. That's how you get wisdom. Now, you'll never get it completely right. right? We continue to live with the effects as long as we live in this, in this world, this remnant of sin, this mixed motivation that seeks to do things God way, God's way on the one hand, but on the other hand, we seek to, to do things our own way. That's always gonna be the case. And we're gonna fail and we're gonna make wrong decisions, but we pursue it. And it's why we need the fourth point desperately. We need to understand that we, 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 we need to understand what wisdom is and, and why we need it and how we get it, but we need to understand desperately why Solomon's wisdom isn't enough. So I don't have time to to, to read it, but if you read the that second part of First Kings chapter three, from verse sixteen to the end, the, the portion of the chapter that we didn't read, you have this incident that's this really famous example of, of Solomon's wisdom. Because you have these two moms, these two mothers, who come to Solomon, and they both are claiming that one, that one baby boy belongs to, to them, right? So one, one mother is saying, like, it's my boy. The other, the other mom is saying, no, it's my son. And they come to Solomon, the great judge, and says, you need to help us figure this out. And Solomon says, okay, uh, let's do this. Uh, let's bring a sword. We're going to cut the child in half, give half to one mom, half to the other. And of course, the real mom, at the prospect of this, speaks up and says, no, no, don't, don't harm the child. Give the living child to her. And Solomon he instantly knows this is the real mom, the one who would care enough to give up her child so that he would be able to, to live. And everyone is amazed. Everyone is in, in awe at the brilliance of the wisdom of Solomon. But see, Solomon, Solomon's an interesting character. Because Solomon, for all of his wisdom demonstrated here, eventually, pretty quickly, begins to falter. The wise king will fail, and we'll see that in the, in the coming weeks. He won't be able to keep his own proverbs. See, whether, whether his alliance with Egypt was good or bad at this particular moment in this instance, what we see is that his, his, his desire for power and prestige, his love for foreign women, that you might be able to root right here, Leads him away from God. He ends up worshiping other gods, walking away from God. 1 Kings chapter 11 tells us his heart was not fully devoted to God. And this presents a huge problem for us if we're relying just simply on having the wisdom of, of Solomon because it means that the wisdom of Solomon, as great as it is, is not enough. He was the wisest of all men. Right? It's not enough for him. How could it possibly be enough for us? That's a problem. Because if he can't be devoted to God in this kind of way, how can we possibly be? See, God desires a relationship with his people. He desires to bless them, just like he comes to Solomon. He desires to bless us, and yet we say we want that, but then we walk away from that. We we decide to do things our own way. What's God supposed to do? He's the perfect judge. This is the case that's brought in front of him. What's he supposed to do? Well, the perfect judge can't let rebellion, can't let injustice go unanswered, go unpunished or else the righteousness of who he is isn't going to be lifted up. Now, at the same time, he's also a God who desires to, to show mercy and blessing to, the pe- to those that he's called to be his people. What's he to do? That's a real problem, real dilemma. kind of makes Solomon's dilemma with the two women seem kind of, kind of simple because this isn't a case where you, a problem that can be solved just by simply you know, taking a sword and, and having a son killed. Or can it? Or is it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about the true nature of wisdom. He says that while Jews look for for miraculous signs, you know, like the genie, and Greeks look for wisdom, like Solomon's, the Christian church is different. The Christian church preaches Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see that? Wisdom is ultimately not something you do; wisdom is a person you pursue. Solomon's book of Proverbs hints at this. At the beginning of Proverbs, you see him sort of describing wisdom as a person, giving personification to this wisdom. Seek wisdom, and here Paul is making it very, very clear that that person. That person of wisdom is ultimately Jesus. Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. See, unlike Solomon, who, who really just brought out the sword as a threat to get the truth of what, who the real mother was, right? this is no threat. The sword of, re- of royal judgment really does fall on this son. And through his death, our rebellious foolishness is forgiven. And in a much greater way than the, than the news spread among the people of Israel at the, at the wisdom of Solomon, the news of this wisdom, which is the gospel, foolishness, foolishness to many, but the wisdom and the hope of all of mankind, this gospel should drive us to absolute amazement when we hear about it. Absolute amazement and awe of a God who would solve the unsolvable problem like this. What do you, what do you want? Now, I'm sure there's lots of decisions that, You have to make many of them are decisions where the where the facts where the morality aren't in question and you need wisdom but see i want you to see we need to see wisdom doesn't come poof from a genie it comes from knowing god from walking with him from learning of him and the only way that we're able to do that without the weight of the of the need for wisdom kind of falling down on us And despite our own rebelliousness against God, the only way that we're able to do that is because of the person of wisdom. By putting our faith in the person of wisdom, Jesus, the one who took the sword of judgment for us. Let's pray. God, you are indeed wise, wise in ways that we can't even understand. Lord, that you would would die for us that you would take the sword of judgment on our behalf in the person of Jesus. Oh, God, I mean, can it really be, can that really be true that you would do that, that you would die for us? And yet you have, and you promise us that, and you invite us to know you. And so, Lord, I pray that, first of all, all of us would just be reminded that you, are the source of all wisdom. You are the person of wisdom. Lord, let us put our faith and our trust in you and pursue you and pursue you alone. And at the same time, Lord, I also pray very practically for everyone here who's making decisions on a daily basis, things where the complications of life are are very apparent, where it's hard. God, I pray that they would draw close to you and not through some sort of magical incantation or some poof of a genie, but through the power of your presence, honed over time as they get to know you in the study of your word and in the presence of your people, may they make decisions that are wise. And may it honor you, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.